I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. On December 30th, 2021, hurricane-force winds fueled the largest urban wildfire in Colorado history. The Marshall Fire burned over 6,000 acres and destroyed more than 1,000 homes in Boulder County. The very next day, President Biden approved federal disaster assistance for that county. Following most large disasters, people instinctively want to assist those in needs, often through donations. While monetary donations are generally preferred as they provide the most flexibility for distribution and ease of use by disaster survivors, donations of material items can pose challenges, most notably warehouse space for storage and the need for staffing to sort through and distribute donated goods. To address those specific concerns, the state of Colorado successfully partnered with voluntary organizations to set up donations management centers inside of a former department store. Hundreds of volunteers worked around the clock to ensure that donated supplies were sorted and organized so disaster survivors could shop for the items that they needed. The center also provided other critical services like mental health care and referrals to other resource needs, truly serving as a hub for individual recovery. So on this episode, our colleagues in Region 8 out of Denver, Colorado, highlight this shining example of how the public sector and voluntary organizations can partner to maximize assistance to those in need. Just a note, this episode was recorded in late April of 2022, just before the State of Colorado Marshall Fire Donations and Resource Center ended operations and survivor services transitioned to local management. I am the Voluntary Agency Liaison for Colorado Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. My name is Christy Judd. I am the CEO of Spark the Change Colorado. My first name is Kathy. My last name is Kistner. I serve the Rocky Mountain Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist as Departmental Director for Community Services. In the state of Colorado, I carry the Memorandum of Understanding for Donations Management. So... We're here to talk about the facility that you have here during the uh, Marshall Fire. Can you tell us the official name of the facility? This is the State of Colorado Marshall Fire Donations and Resource Center. So where is this center located and how was the facility secured? So we are in Broomfield. We're just under a mile from the southeast branch of the Marshall Fire burn area. Um, It's just over the hill from us. Our staff with the Office of Emergency Management learned that this space was available. It's a large former retail space. Um, They learned it was available at the mall several days after the fire, and we began working with property management to secure a lease. We knew based on the scale of the damage we were facing that there would be a high demand for the services that would come out of this facility, so we decided to pursue a five-month lease initially using disaster emergency funding. And what factors went into deciding uh, where this facility ended up being located? We picked this space because of how close it is to the residential areas that were impacted by the fire and the high wind event that fell under the same disaster declaration. It was evident very quickly that the Colorado spirit of giving was in full force. We had donations pouring in from all over the state, so having a space that was this large was definitely preferable. The building allowed room to receive, sort, and distribute all of the donations that were literally arriving by the semi-truckload from the very beginning, and it also provided a space that offered survivors the opportunity to gather together, reconnect with their neighbors, and receive services from different government and nonprofit partners. 
So Noah, can you talk about the partnerships that were involved in making this center happen? The partnerships to support disaster recovery are created well before a disaster actually strikes in Colorado. Our Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management is a member of COVOAD, which is the Colorado Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, uh, along with our partners from Adventist Community Services Disaster Response and Spark the Change, who are helping us run this facility. From the moment it became apparent how destructive the fire had been, the COVOAD agencies were all meeting and had their teams on standby. And thanks to our state's strong relationship with all these voluntary agencies, once the Boulder County requested state assistance, it was just a matter of a phone call to each organization and they were mobilizing their paid and volunteer staff. Can you tell me about what it takes to run a facility like this one? Well, certainly um, Spark the Change Colorado is the state's leading agency on volunteer engagement. So we know that when we have an incident this size and a donation center is set up, that it takes a, a tremendous amount of labor to receive all of the donations, to sort through all the donations, to determine which ones are worthy of the dignity of a client coming through the door um, and which need to be processed in a different way. Um, once that happens, all of those items need to be hung or shelved, labeled, uh, made attractive, um, and organized in such a way that a client can easily find what they need. So certainly if all of that labor needed to be paid labor, it would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so we engage volunteers in a way that is an investment in our community. Folks are eager and anxious to help. Most of the time when Spark the Change Colorado is engaged, we are working with spontaneous unaffiliated volunteers. Uh, many of the affiliated volunteers are already out working with um, many of our Colorado VOAD agencies doing stuff outside this center. So it's a great opportunity for us to invite those folks who are watching social media, hearing the news, reading stories, and really want to give back to come in and do something that's meaningful and impactful. It's not busy work ever. It's always work that's designed and needed to be done in an organized way. So when we say we engage volunteers, we always talk about it as an investment, not an expense. We need to um, sign them up for specific date and time activities. When they walk in the door, we need to check to make sure that they're here. Um, early on, we clearly had um, uh, safety protocols put in place, not only for uh, people's health, but the health of, of everyone. Um, and then we get them assigned to a task. Once they're assigned to a task, they are working with a, a team leader. Uh, so they uh, have a bit of an orientation, some job training, and then it's roll up the sleeves and get working. So with this facility, it was a large facility and lots of donated resources. Have you worked in this kind of facility before of this magnitude on other types of emergencies or disasters? And what kind of activities were people doing when they were here once they went through orientation, once they got an idea of what to do? Spark the Change has uh, typically um, in, you know, connected volunteers into voluntary organizations. Um, we haven't had a strong role in being part of a donations and resource center. When uh, the donation center opened and all those, you know, black bags full of donations and all those 
you know, cars drive by to drop off things that would be helpful, household items, linens, bedding, you know, even food items. Um, volunteers met those donors to unload their trucks, unload their cars, put things in carts and bring them into the facility. Then they went to the sorting stations, right? And our volunteers were able to, with very little, you know, instruction, take a look at a t-shirt, take a look at a a crock pot, take a look at a pillow and get it to the right place where it needed to go. The number of volunteers that it takes to run this facility really changes over time. In the early days, we had five two-hour shifts a day, 30 volunteers each shift. So 150 volunteers, unique volunteers every day. Now, many of those volunteers didn't go home after their two hours. They would stay four or five hours. So the number of hours are really probably under under um, calculated. Now we have probably about 10 volunteers a day. Uh, and then when we do the close down, it'll pop back up to like 40 or 50 volunteers to sort of pack everything up and get it shipped where it needs to go. The number of volunteer hours that have been donated to this facility since January through today's date, April 26th, my goodness, the time goes quickly. Um, we have 18,422 hours calculated at $15 an hour. That's $276,335 donated to the recovery of this community. And as you said, these are all donated hours. And if you were to bring in people to work, that would be potentially how much money it would cost. But this was all the work of wonderful residents that were here. Yeah, and that's why I always try to share with people that um, engaging volunteers is always an investment. It's never an expense. If you invest a dollar in a volunteer program, you will get six back or 600%. And I always tell people that's better than Wall Street. So come invest your money here. So can you talk a little bit about the types of donations that were at this facility and kind of how you managed all the donations that came in from community members who wanted to help survivors after the fire. In an incident this large, the types of donations we need are never ending. We had service groups bring in things like complete kitchen kits so that people could reestablish their kitchen. We had books. We had a um, Catholic elementary school in Florida send us 300 books. They had done a book drive, and they wanted the children up here to have new books. So that that was also part of it. Then you have, and, and we don't often think of this, but... How do you deal with your garden, your yard things in the in the spring? So we had people bringing in rakes and hoes and shovels and things like that. And then we had the clothing. We, we'd never stop and think about, oh, I'm going to wear this favorite shirt today. Well, now it's gone. So they have to have a new favorite shirt. So when you think of the whole household, we attempt to, as closely as possible, replace those items for them. And there were so many different types of things that were donated for survivors. How did you manage all of those different pieces, whether it was sorting them, getting them into the facility so that survivors could pick them out and take them home with them? How did that process kind of work? Well, one of the first things is you have to have a sorting team. You have to have someone who knows how to do it. You have to have a team, a leadership team that knows how to envision a safe mart in a facility like this. And as you can see... Most generally, when I do a facility like this, it is set up like a store. 
So we established that part of it so that as we sort the donations as they come in, then we put them in that department. And we have racks, we have tables, we try to display it so people are comfortable in, in, in shopping because that's the opportunity they have. We have standards for the items when we sort them. The rule of thumb is if you would not ask a member of your family to wear it, why ask theirs? So can you talk a little bit more about what the process is like for a survivor to come into this facility and get the help um, to get resources and all those kind of things? We had a, a specific door that clients would come in and out of. This was clearly a facility that was not open to the general public, but only those who were affected by the fires. And affected meant they lived in a an area that was either burned or there was ash, water, soot, that kind of damage. Um, and so they had to really established that they were affected either with a FEMA number or um, an address um, that we could look up on a map. Um, we had for the first time an app that was designed to capture people's information. So they only had to register with us just the one time. So um, they were welcome to come as many times as they needed to come in. Our folks at the, at the front desk um, are really on the front line of seeing those folks for the first time. And a lot of emotions walk in the door, a lot of realization at that point that, oh my gosh, look at all the things that I don't have anymore. Uh, we had the emotional spiritual care group from the Colorado VOAD, the local chapter here, come in and, and provide some assistance to those volunteers. And then because Spark the Change Colorado was in the building, uh, we also brought our mental wellness program in the door. So we um, recognized that healing is clearly a process and people need to be able to find a resource when they're ready for it. We brought in Mocha, our therapy dog. Um, but what was really incredible for us is we have a small team, 100 professional counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists volunteered to be part of our program. So all of our counseling is done by volunteers, not our staff. Um, so another way for volunteers to connect to uh, uh, communities in ways that use their skills. It's uh, important that we unpack all those bags and boxes. It's also important that we reach out to people who have skills, who can offer services. And we're seeing now as we're getting near the end of this facility being open that people are, are how do we continue? What's next? So our mental wellness teams have said, have created a, a resource board saying there are more resources in the community. Um, Spark the Change Colorado certainly has a program that runs, you know, um, continually throughout the years, disaster or not. So I think there's a place for people six months time, 18 months time to get the services they need. And you talked about some of the uh, departments. It's laid out like a department store or a store where, where people can go and shop. Can you give us a little bit of a description of what some of those departments look like on this ground floor? You start out with the toys and the children are allowed 
to select the toy that they want. Um, the shoes, the new shoes, oftentimes we will separate out from the gently used shoes so that the, the client knows what is the new items and they're allowed. Then the clothing is hung by, by size, by type. We have the men's category. We have the women's category. We have a teen's category. We have a children's category. We have an infant's. Things are displayed well so that the client can do that shopping. Um, the food, our food pantry, that is always a big need. We have shelving. We have the things to organize it so it is easy to shop. The linens, the same thing there. Then our infant department with the diapers and those type of items. Do you have any numbers or information on the number of families that were helped at this facility um, and the types of what number of items that were distributed? Well, currently... The number of individuals that have been served is 3,041. The number of families that have been served is 1,292. The total number of articles distributed is 238,493. And that says as of yesterday evening. So the total visits, and these are repeat visits, because what we need to remember, as the client, those impacted by the incident begin their recovery, if they're at an Airbnb or a hotel or in grandma's house, then they move to an apartment. And we had this happen yesterday. Oh, oh, we have to get out of the Airbnb. We need all of these things. Then they return. So the total number of visits is 10,210. The total articles distributed is 238,493. And then the number of gift cards distributed is right at $32,000. You've been here for several months with this facility. Are there any stories or memorable moments that you've had ensuring with survivors? Because as you mentioned, when they walk in the door, can be really emotional to see all these things to be helped after they've lost practically everything. Um, is there anything that stands out to you? I had a gentleman walk in. He was a little early. It was before we were open. Our volunteer door was open, but our client door wasn't. So I, I approached him and I said, hey, can I help you? And he said, honestly, I'm just kind of walking around just to see what I might need. I think I need maybe a plate um, and a you know, a fork and a knife, maybe a pot. He said, you know, I've been working on all my insurance forms and you know, they want to, you to line item every single thing that was in your house. He said, I can tell you every single thing that was in my garage, but it was my wife's job to take care of what was in the house. Unfortunately, she passed away in November. So here was this man who was coming in all by himself no family. His wife just passed away and he's looking for a pot. Really what we were able to do for him was connect him to a community to show him where the little library is that we've got here. So he could take a book home. He could understand that he could start to build his life here just one plate, one cup at a time. Um, the other day, Actually, it was uh, Saturday afternoon. There was a couple in, in their mid-40ish age group. And he commented that his wife had not been out of the house for over two years. But when she came into this facility, she felt safe and she felt loved. And she comes in a couple of times a week just 
to receive that love and 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 to be to feel safe and that is a primary goal of ours is because they have been so traumatized they need that sensation yeah it's safe here and we love them and and so she says i'll see you again before you close that is a primary goal also from a volunteer perspective they're so grateful to be here they're so grateful to be able to provide some comfort to provide um, material items, um, to provide a cup of coffee. We had our RSVP group here in a kind of a thank you dinner the other night, and they were telling their stories. And they, many have come more than one time. One woman has been here over 100 hours, and she said it is important for them as they are aging, to continue to find purpose in their life. It's unfortunate that it was a disaster, but when there's a disaster, it's so critical that we allow everyone to have a part in the healing of our community. So as this facility transitions to local support on April 30th, can you talk about that process, what that will look like, um, and what happens to some of these supplies and donations after the facility transitions? Well, we need to always inform the client, help them understand that they're not being abandoned, that we're just transitioning over to the support that is already established in their community, and that they need to be aware of where they can get the things, the other things that they need. And then the items that are left here go back into those support groups so that they can continue to support the client. So Noah, what were some of the innovations in how the center was set up, operated, and managed? For the first time in Colorado, we're using a computerized system to track client registrations, the donations that are coming in, and what's going out the door every day. This has been great because it makes the process a lot smoother for clients who walk in the door and lets us quickly identify which items are most in demand so we can target messaging out with partner agencies. This also lets the leadership team take a glance and see what times of day or days of the week are busiest, and that really helps making operational and staffing decisions around that information. This is also the first time that the state has opened a combined donations and resource center like this. Because this is such a great space, we've not only had the donations program operated by Adventist Community Services, but Spark the Change has been providing mental health staff along with space for them to meet with survivors. We had the FEMA Individual Assistance Program staff here during the registration period so we could save survivors a trip to another location. Our partners from Colorado 211 and Mile High United Way have been out here on site to help with resource navigation for survivors. Spark the Change has brought in groups like Therapy Dogs, and Spark's RSVP program is operating the cafe area, which is something new and fantastic. It gives survivors a place to sit, take a quiet moment, connect with neighbors they haven't seen since everybody was displaced. Um, and this facility has allowed us to provide a space that gives survivors a greater sense of dignity as they start to progress through recovery than if we had just leased an, an empty warehouse. And it gives the state and our partners a roadmap for how we want to operate during future disasters. When we see survivors coming in, their response has been really notable to how big this facility is, the sense of dignity that 
that comes with it. People definitely appreciate this space and they're articulating their appreciation for the volunteers who are working to keep it operational. So you kind of alluded to it earlier. Has anything like this ever been done with the state of Colorado in terms of a donation and resource center being set up in the past? We've never been able to combine both a donations and resource center facility together. Um, this is something that is definitely new for us, but it's been a success. We've learned a lot as we as we've put it together. Um, I think in the future we'll have a better idea of how we want to set things up and probably take the best practices learned here and you'll see a slightly different type of facility in the future. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? So as the voluntary agency liaison, I think I've got the best job in the state of Colorado. Um, there has been an incredible outpouring of volunteer support. Coloradans just have a great spirit of service and volunteerism is definitely alive and well here. So I'm really fortunate to be working from this facility every day and see all of the effort and care that goes into volunteering here. We have neighbors who were evacuated during the Marshall Fire who are working 70 hours a week here as volunteers supporting their friends and neighbors. We have people whose homes burn to the ground that are in here every week volunteering because it's the only way they feel like they can give back. Uh, there's been such a great outpouring of support from the community and it's it's overwhelmed the people who are receiving that support. So this is not just an outlet to get stuff into people's hands. It's really providing emotional and spiritual care to people who were impacted directly or indirectly and giving them an outlet to give back. From the time the Marshall Fire Donations and Resource Center opened on January 11, 2022, to its last day of operation on April 30th, the center served over 3,000 individuals and 1,300 families. Nearly 250,000 items were distributed, $33,000 in gift cards were dispersed, and over 20,000 volunteer hours were donated to help the local community. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov slash podcast. Hey.